0: Well, this morning we return to the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 7. If you're using one of our pew Bibles this morning, it's page 1196, and if you'd turn there. As you turn, I just want to share with you, uh, you know, I had the the wonderful blessing this weekend of being able to go and do a little fishing, and uh, caught a couple of those red snapper that I've heard so much about, and I have a whole new understanding and appreciation of what fresh fish is. You know, I've, I fished as a little kid. We used to go catch brookies and, uh, and rainbows in the, in the creek, and, and that was wonderful. And yeah, it is creek. You know, I know that that's some other things, but that's just the way it is. And uh, I'll have some other pronunciation things as we move along. You know, I taught my boys to fish, and uh, by the time they got around, most of them were planters. They weren't quite as fresh, you know, but it was still fresh fish. And then we started to learn about seafood. And that was wonderful, but seafood in Idaho, well, needless to say, it's a little ways from the sea, and uh, not quite so great. It got a little better in California. Well, this was a whole new level, you know, from lunchtime for the fish in the sea to dinnertime at our table. Um, just incredible. You might wonder, well, that's wonderful, Pastor, but what's that got to do with what we're talking about today? Well, I would say that it has everything to do with what we're talking about today because that level of freshness that I've expressed, that is the level of freshness that needs to live in our heart for Christ. And there are various levels of that. There are various ways in which we are committed and focused and devoted to our Savior You see, there's a connection to the knowledge, but really, more it is about the desire to know. This isn't a a Gnosticism, a higher knowledge issue, but it is a desire. As we consider our text today, that's what we're going to be talking about, is what is your desire? Because there are those who know the name of Jesus, but they deny him. I trust there's probably none in our midst today that are of that caliber. Yet still our hearts go out to them, and that is why we are called to carry the gospel message forth per Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. There are those who are professors of Christ, but do not possess Him, do not have the power of their spirit living in Him. And oftentimes there are those of this group in the churches in our country and, and doubtlessly even here. There are those who are saved, but just Barely. If the Lord were to return today, you would be with him, but by the skin of your teeth. And then there are those who have been saved for a good bit, but they're not growing, they're stagnant. And of course, then there are those who are thriving for Christ. We're going to see, as we come to our text this morning in Hebrews, that you'll get to consider more carefully where you are with regards to your love for Christ And more so, what is that scale of spiritual freshness that you have? And where would you like to be? Our title this morning as we continue on in this section is The Eternal Superiority Over the Heavens, Part 2, if you're keeping note on that. The Eternal Superiority Over the Heavens, Part 2. Look with me, if you would, at Hebrews. I'm going to again read the entire chapter because this is essentially a unit. So we're going to read through this first chapter together. Follow along with me, please. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. "...whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high." Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels wins. And his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment." And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The eternal superiority over the heavens. In our text today, we're going to see these two additional features of heavenly superiority. And they will assess our devotion to Christ. And help us to understand as we look into the nuances of this amazing text, what God is teaching us about His Son. Hebrews began by showing the superiority of the revelation of God, the superiority of the New Testament over the Old. And it did this through a series of contrasts and comparisons. Comparisons of the agents, that is the agents of the prophets, versus the agents of Christ in the full revelation of the Son. Comparisons of time, that long ago, which is that in these days, in these days that we're currently in. And comparisons as well regarding the many parts and many ways versus the continuous revelation and the complete revelation of Christ. Then we saw the seven stunning characteristics and all of this in the first three verses. Then verse 4 began the first comparative of the sun to the angels. And that section moves all the way from verse 4 to verse 14. This is all one unit of scripture. All one argumentation. The second most impactful argument in the book of Hebrews. And why was that? Because the book is written to the Jewish community, the Jewish believers, and they had a problem. They had elevated angels to too high of a status. Some of them saw the angelic realm as being those who were the agents of the Old Covenant. If you wanted to participate in the temple sacrifices, and every good Jew did then the way that you would be effective and efficacious in those sacrifices was when the angels would interact and be an intermediary for you to God. This all came from the Talmud and the Mishnah. It is not biblical, but that's where they had gone to. They had also seen the angels as counselors of God, that before God really did anything, he went and counseled with a group of angels. Also, not in the Bible. Some of them saw this group of 200 or so angels that they saw that they felt like moved the stars and kept the stars in their place. What do the psalmists tell us? The Lord holds the stars in the palm of His hands. Again, not biblical, but this was their conception. Some of them even saw Michael the Archangel as a higher authority than the Messiah, and they said, "Wait a minute." This can't happen. And the author of Hebrews says, we must get this straight. We must help them understand the superiority of Christ because when they knew this, it would help them recognize where Jesus is and why he's there. It would also help them understand that the word tells us of his return. The Old Testament spoke about it, as does the new. And when they were going to be able to expect that and they needed to be ready And it would also help them endure and not backslide. And beloved, this is why this is so important to us. Because these are the lessons we need to know. Where is Jesus and why? We need to understand that he is returning and we must be ready. We must understand that the danger to backslide is always around us. And just because we might come to church does not mean we are safe from those dangers. Well, verse 4 showed us Jesus as a better, actually as a much better comparison to the angels. And when we looked at that verse, we saw that there was a commencement. There was an inauguration of Jesus' superiority over the angels. And it was the name that was being elevated. And it was at his resurrection that Jesus' name attained, commenced a, a new Power and superiority was inaugurated for his name. And some have said, well, does that mean he was only the son from the time of his resurrection? No, not at all. Because we went to verse 5, it showed us the eternal nature of the sonship of Christ. That as we went to Psalm 2 and as we went to Psalm 97, we saw that in context, those texts showed us That Christ was eternal for all future and eternal from all times past as the Son. It was simply an element of his name that received additional superiority at his resurrection. And as we looked into this, this just showed us more insight into the Trinity. This took us, if you will, into the Holy of Holies and helped us to see nuances of God and nuances of Christ and the work of His Spirit that otherwise we would not recognize. These three areas of Jesus' superiority over the angels are what are brought forward to us in this section from verse 4 to 14. We looked at the last three verses, 4 to 6 last week, and we could call that a superiority of service. A superiority of service, and we talked about his superiority of name in verse 4, superiority of origin in verse 5, and his superiority of rank, the firstborn being highest in authority in verse 6. And now we see his superiority in service in verses 7 to 9. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the superiority of subsistence at the conclusion of the chapter. But for now, look with me at verse 7 and our first point. I've titled our first point, The Servant Maker. The Servant Maker. Verse 7 continues the proclamation of God from verse 5. Beloved, this text in Hebrews is all about the spoken word of God. Have you noticed that repetition? What did we see in verse 1? God. God. After he spoke. Verse two. In the last days has spoken to us in his son. God has spoken to us in his son. We go to verse five. For to which of the angels did he ever say? Verse six. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says. And now in verse seven. And of the angels he says. Speaking about the angelic realm. And the point here is the superiority The superiority of Christ over the angelic realm. Now this quote in verse 7 takes us to a new part of the Old Testament... To Psalm 104, and I'd like you to go there with me. Psalm 104, page 613, if you're using one of our Pew Bibles. But keep your fingers right here in Hebrews 1, because we're going to move back and forth a little bit. Psalm 104 is a wonderful text that gives us some great insight into these components of the superiority of Christ over the angelic realm. The things that we're going to see initially are are structural items from Psalm 104. But don't worry, these aren't boring grammatical details. These are unique items that show us more of the excellencies of Christ and reveal more of the excitement of seeing him as he's revealed in the Old Testament. Look first at Psalm 104 and verse 4, the verse that is quoted, and let's just look at the first stanza of verse 4 and read it together. He makes the winds his messengers. He makes the winds his messengers. Now, there's two things that I need you to keep in mind while we're having this discussion. Two translation issues are very simple. You'll know it and have heard some of them before. The first is the word wind can also be translated as spirit. It is the word ruach in the Hebrew or pneuma in the Greek and it means spirit or wind or breath. It is a very common Greek word and Hebrew word and it's very unique in that in both Greek and Hebrew, it has the same translation to English. Oftentimes that doesn't happen, but it's because of the import of that word. So keep in mind that the word wind can be spirit. The second thing to keep in mind, also perhaps have heard this, the word messenger is often translated as angel. Messenger and angel are often the same word. And this is what the Septuagint does when it quotes about the angels in our text in Hebrews 1. And again, you can kind of flip back and forth to 1.7 and see there that it's talking about angels where here in Psalm 104, in verse 4, we're speaking about messengers. Well, what's happening there? Is there a change? No. We're, We're having confirmed for us by the New Testament revelation that the context that Psalm 104 was written in was a focus on the angelic realm. We don't see that specifically from Psalm 104. But when it's written in the New Testament, we're given further light, further illumination. This is what we call inerrancy. When the Bible writes it, we believe that it is inerrant and that there is an explanation when we see a change from the Old Testament. This is the same thing that goes on in some of the extra-biblical writing. If you're familiar with the book of Jude, there is a place where we're told that Michael the archangel wrestled with Satan for the body of Moses. That comes from the book of Enoch. Can you go, wait a minute, book of Enoch? We don't have that. No, we don't, because that's an extra-biblical writing. But the fact that it is in our Bibles makes that portion of an extra-biblical book authoritative and accurate. So also here, when we see the change from messenger to angel, we're seeing that the context is simply being further described for us. So in Psalm 104, that first stanza, the first issue is word order. Look at it there in your Bibles. If you have the New American Standard, it says, He makes the winds His messengers. So the question becomes, who or what is being made Is it the wind that's being made? Or is it the messengers that are being made? Now, we know God is in control of both. This isn't a theological issue. We know God controls everything. But what is he saying to us here? Which is the servant maker making? He makes the winds or he makes the messenger. Now, when we look at this, again, that word order tells us, from Hebrews that it is his angels or messengers that are being made. Now, it's interesting that if you have an English Standard Version, and I rarely prefer the English Standard Version, especially in the Old Testament, it actually does a better job at this translation. And it turns those around and it says, he makes his messengers wins. That is a more literal translation to what's being discussed. One commentator says that that can't be the case. It can't be saying he makes his messengers or his angels the winds. Because what's wind? Well, it blows all over and it changes. So somehow we're saying that angels are changeable or temporal or that they come and go, that they're mutable. But remember, that's not at all the truth of Scripture regarding the angels Listen with me to John chapter 3 and verse 8. John 3 and 8 says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is compared in that context where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus after Nicodemus wonders how to be born again. And it is telling him that even the Spirit blows as the wind. So that confirms for us that in our reference, what's happening here is that he makes his messengers winds. Now, what's, that's what's going on, and the proper word order here shows us that the stanza, in the stanza that the messengers are not changing, but they are rather exemplifying something. We see the rest of the picture in the next part of Psalm 104. Look at the second stanza. Flaming fire his ministers. Now, if you look in the marginal note, you'll have a, a number three by flaming fire in your New American standards, or if you're using the Pew Bible, it'll be note number six. And You'll notice that it says, or his ministers flaming fire. It reverses them already and shows that there is an issue. So what is this all about? What is this word order focusing us on? The reason is because when we consider that second part, he makes is indicative of the first statement. He makes his ministers flaming fire. He doesn't make flaming fire his ministers. All fire is not something that is a minister of God, is it? Uh, of course it's not. We know that fire isn't exclusively used by God. Some illustrations of fire are emblematic of God as ministers. In fact, that's what we see in Acts chapter 2, in verse 1 at Pentecost. It says, When the day of Pentecost had come in Acts two, one, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house, where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Well, we know that fire in some cases is emblematic of God's work, such as here or the refining fire which we are exposed to, which First Peter speaks about. But there are also cases of fire in the scripture that are not messengers of God. We'll go back to the book of Acts, for instance, in Acts chapter 28 and verse 1. Let me read just a couple of verses in Acts 28.1. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. This, of course, at Paul's shipwreck as he's preparing to go to Rome. And in verse 3 it says, But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand fire obviously is not the messenger of God in that text so also when we understand many components of fire so what's going on in these verses well it's fairly simple like all Hebrew poetry, there is a parallelism, and when it says he makes his ministers winds, and when he makes his messengers flaming fire, the messengers in that case and the ministers are parallel. The ministers and the messengers are the angels of God, per our text in Hebrew 1:7. In Hebrews 1:7. And now we're seeing these elements of wind and fire as being illustrative of angels. They're pictorial for us. The angels go like the wind wherever God directs them. What do we know about wind? Sometimes it's gentle and wonderful, sometimes it's a calm, still breeze, a calm breeze on a hot day that gives us some relief. Sometimes it is a violent, tornadic effect that tears our created world apart. So also with the angels, sometimes they are a gentle encouragement to us. Sometimes they are the hand of God in his wrath. Those who come through the streets in Ezekiel on those who have been marked and kill those who have been marked out for destruction. Sometimes they are the angels of wrath in Revelation. Revelation. And sometimes they are the encouragement. Likewise, his messengers flaming fire. Angels are like a roaring fire. Sometimes they are extremely useful. As in a a steel kiln where thousand degree furnaces are heated to melt molten steel to prepare it. All in a controlled environment. Sometimes they're like a forest fire in their destruction. And if you've not seen a, a thousand acre or a five or ten or twenty thousand acre fire, which is making its own winds and which is casting sparks as big as this pulpit miles ahead and beginning other fires, then you don't understand that level of devastation. But that's what these angelic beings are being pictured as. They are, they are powerful The issue is exemplifying the power of the angels, but our point is that the servant maker, the one who makes the angels, the one who the angels worship in Hebrews 1.6 is inferior to the maker, Christ who is all in all, who is superior over all things. But there is another huge point in Psalm 104, and we can't miss it before we leave. Look back with me to verse 1 of Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heavens like a tent. He lays a beam in his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers and flaming fire his ministers. This is the place where we stop and are overwhelmed by the God whom is pictured for us. This tremendous psalm that becomes the creation psalm in the next verses begins with this huge blessing of God. This focus on the God who is very great. In the Hebrew, the highest expression of greatness. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a cloak. When we see all of the pictures in the scripture of God, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in John, there is this huge light, light like burning of the sun, it is often described. God has robed himself with that. What an amazing consideration for us stretching out heaven like a tent curtain and then in verse 3 he moves forward and it says he makes he makes the literal translation of it is is really who makes it's drawing a question it's asking us to consider who is it that lays beams of his upper chambers in the water how do you even do that how do you lay a beam in water and it becomes a foundation In our way of thinking, there is no stability in a beam sitting on water. I've built a lot of things, and unless you're putting together a boat or something that's going to float and move, you're not putting a beam in the water. But God does that. Who makes the clouds his chariots? Who he rides upon the clouds? Who makes the wings his wind? Who makes his messengers Wind and his ministers flaming fire. This incredible picture of who God is. The amazing, incomparable and incomprehensible. The immutable and infinite God. That is who is pictured for us. This is the comparison of the one who is far superior than the angels. The focus here is on God and beloved. This drives us to our theme How does this affect your devotion? When you consider those components and who God is as he's been revealed to us in the scripture, the way that he uses and manifests his angelic realm and how far superior Christ is above them, what does it do to your heart? Now perhaps you're thinking, how is the superiority of Christ over the angels indicated in this for God is the subject of adoration in Psalm 104. Well, I'm glad you've asked. Because that's exactly where our second point in Hebrews 1.8 takes us. Because as I mentioned, this is one unit, verses 7 to 9. Verse 7, our first point, the servant maker, and that takes us back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, where our second point is the scepter owner. The servant maker and now the scepter owner. Look at verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews with me, if you would please. Hebrews 1 and verse 8. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Having spoken of the angels in verse 7, now the author speaks on behalf of God to the Son. The angels were made by God. He was the servant maker. But now the Son is God. He is the one who owns the throne. This is the, the same connotation that we saw back in verse 3 of Hebrews 1. Look at the end of Hebrews 1.3 where it says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The throne that God sat down on is not the Davidic throne. The Davidic throne is an earthly throne, but this is the throne in heaven which God is upon and which Christ sits at his right hand. And he is God upon the throne forever and ever. The one who is God. This confirms for us in that next section the eternal nature of the Son and his reign which is confirmed by the Father in verse 8 where it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The one who owns the scepter is the next portion of our verse. Quite literally making him the scepter owner. Well, what, what is a scepter? I mean, we're not very familiar with that language today. We've kind of seen it. Well, let me just give you a quick description of the scepter, which is of the portion of the crown jewels in England. It's about three feet long. It has about three pounds of gold in it. So for those of you that know what gold is worth per ounce, you can do a little calculation. But that really doesn't touch it because you see on top of that is a cross. Interesting that they understood that there was a temporal component of power in being the head of state, and it was tied to God. And right below that cross, there is a pear-shaped diamond that is called the Great Star of Africa. It is 530 carats, and it is the largest clear-cut stone yet to this day in the world. Now, I don't know what a carrot worth of diamonds cost, but I know I've bought a wedding ring, and some of you know that as well. And doubtlessly, it's more today than when I bought it. And 530 of them is a whole bunch more than I bought, and that is a whole bunch of money that's put together. And the point is that this scepter indicates the value of the one who holds it and the authority of his rule. Scepter is a unique word actually in the scriptures, in that it only occurs in the old testament that 's pretty rare, but you will not find the word scepter in the New Testament. I suspect because we have a change in the kingship. The dictionary ties the word origin to a shepherd's staff numbers twenty one eight supports this etymology where it says in numbers twenty one and eighteen rather numbers twenty one eighteen says the well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. And this, of course, reminds us of the rod and the staff. So there is this connection to the shepherd's staff. And in the ancient world, the, the, the scepter was very much like the king's sword. If you came in before the king, of course, you did not come in unannounced. But even coming in announced, the king would be sitting in his throne and he would be holding his scepter. And if he was approving of your coming in, he would hold the scepter up and you would be granted admission. If he put the scepter down, then the guards would bring their swords and your life would be taken from you. So the scepter was a very powerful instrument. But notice in our text, the scepter is almost always associated with a king and here we see it as well in this parallelism in the Psalms. In verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. So this scepter that we're speaking about is one of righteousness. Well, can a scepter, can an object be righteous? No. It's reflecting the kingdom for which it stands. It's reflecting the character of the king. Clearly the scepter itself is not righteous, but this is further figurative language referencing the reign of the king, the reign of the son, the one who is on the throne, that his kingdom is one of righteousness. We understand righteousness, don't we? It's a a legal term. It means one who is declared not guilty. Of course the son was not guilty. God is in all rights righteous and perfectly so. But we understand it from a new point of view as well, don't we? We understand it from the point of justification. That is how the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ has been transferred to us as believers. And we are seen as righteous. We are seen today as in the white robes of Christ as those who already are viewed as holy and perfect and that ought make you marvel beloved because there are very few things in this world that are more amazing than the fact that Christ has given us desperate sinners who will yet sin again today his righteousness and taken our sin upon himself The the main point here is not the essence or source of superiority as it was in verses 4 to 6, but it is the positional superiority of Christ. God has established the throne of the Son, and it is a righteous reign. One commentator notes, unlike earthly kingdoms, which make and also unmake their kings, this king makes his own kingdom. Wherever he wields his scepter, there is his kingdom and there is his righteousness. The message of the king's righteousness is it's proclaimed throughout Scripture. Listen to a couple of verses that reflect to us the righteousness of the king. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Here Jeremiah, writing five to six hundred years before the birth of Christ, is proclaiming the one who will come as the righteous branch, the one who is the one from David, who is the Messiah, and that he will be righteous. The end of the story tells us the same thing. In Revelation 15 and verse 3, where we read in the book of Revelation in 15 and 3, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations." The righteousness of God, the righteousness of his kingdom has been proclaimed throughout scripture and now it is shown to us from a positional nature in comparison to the angels. All of this exaltation of the son who is king and then verse 9 further reinforces this point. The first stanza reveals the heart of the king which is to love righteousness and to hate lawlessness wonderful study of the parallels of the Hebrews and the Septuagint quote here in Psalm 45 in verses 6 and 7. And it's interesting that in the Hebrew, the word lawlessness is never used in the Old Testament. But I'll, I'll leave that to your study and maybe a point for you to dive in a little further as good Bereans that you are. But the point is that no lawlessness exists in the Son. His heart, His throne, His kingdom, they are all of righteousness. There is perfection in everything that He does and perfect justice. The parallels are those of Psalm 1, which we'll look at tonight when we come to celebrate the Lord's table. The parallels and contrasts of the righteous and the wicked But the second portion of verse 9 brings a synopsis to this whole section on the superiority of service. We've had several contrasts through the early verses of Hebrews. We've spoken of those contrasts of agent, of time, and of method between the prophets and the son. The contrast of the commencement of Jesus' superiority of name versus the eternality of it. And now we have a contrast of the heavenly roles of our Savior. Jesus is portrayed for us as God in heaven above the eternal realm in verses 8 to 9a. Now we shift. Now in the second half of verse 9, we focus on the earthly role of Jesus as a man. And in this second part, we see quotations from Isaiah chapter 6. God, your God, that beginning of the second half of verse 9, some have said this demeans the deity of Christ. But that is in no way the case. In John 20 and verse 17, we read Jesus himself saying, Stop clinging to me. This is after his resurrection. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. So there is in no way the deity of Christ being demeaned here, but he's pointing us to the fact that now we're seeing the earthly reign of Christ. And that continues further in the rest of the verse where it says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. The rest of this verse takes us to Isaiah 61 and verse 1. And I'd like to ask you to turn there with me quickly as we move to the end of our text. Isaiah 61 and verse 1, page 744, if you're in the Pew Bibles. And in Isaiah, in this text, in Isaiah 61, we see this portion of the eschatology section of Isaiah, the end times section, and we have these two small pieces of quote In verse 1 and verse 3, why does he do that? Because he wants us to go back and look at the entire context and consider what's being said. And that's exactly what we want to do. We want to see the two points that are being addressed and understand all that's in between them that is showing us more of Christ. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 61 with me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, there's our first point, to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. And here's the second part. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Our quotes as we saw in verse 1 and 3... Reference, anointing and that oil of gladness. But what is the rest of this text about? What is he speaking about? The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. What is that good news? Is that not the message of the Messiah? Is that not the picture of the coming Christ? The one who will bring the new covenant? The one who will remove our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh? the one who will bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Incredible. To show that favorable year of the Lord, to comfort those who mourn, to give them garland instead of ashes and gladness instead of mourning, praise instead of a spirit of fainting, and that they would be called oaks of righteousness. Beloved, this is written to those Jews to help them understand the coming of their Messiah. And by application, it is written to you and to me. We are those to whom the favorable year of the Lord has been proclaimed. We are the ones who are freed as prisoners, who liberty has been proclaimed. Our captivity to sin is over. We are now to live victorious lives in Christ. To go forth with the power of his spirit living in us. To move ahead and not be those who are cast down in mourning. But rather to be those who have the oil of gladness. For it is that oil of gladness which Christ has been anointed above his companions. This is the gospel. This is our understanding. That for those who know Christ... For those who recognize their sin and realize that they have to confess every day and seek to live a more holy life, that God is desirous of granting that. That He is desirous of you knowing him more. He's desirous of your devotion, of your desire to seek him more fully. So Jesus' anointing is parallel to that of his companions and it is superior to it. That word companion back in Hebrews 1 and verse 9, it's used only six times in Scripture, five of them in Hebrews. And it relates to those from Isaiah 63, 61-3 rather. One commentator notes, these associates of the king are the saints. He is the heir, as verse 2 showed us. They are his joint heirs as Romans 8:17 proclaims. He is the one on the throne and they sit with him on his throne, Revelation 3 and 21. They share his gladness for he did not take on the nature of angels, but he did take on that of the seed of Abraham. He did take on the role as a man and did condescend from his perfect relationship with the Father to come down to earth so that he could understand our infirmities and our weaknesses, being tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Dr. MacArthur notes of this concluding phrase, the oil of gladness above your companions, references those who would clearly be, those who would otherwise one day be mourning in Zion, but who would instead be clothed with praise and called the oaks of righteousness. Beloved, these are the afflicted whom the good news has come. These are the brokenhearted who have been bound up. The captives to whom liberty has been proclaimed. The freed prisoners and those who are comforted in their mourning. For blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Beloved, do you recognize that this is for you? that this is for me, that this text is talking about us and that by pronouncement of the Father, the Son has superiority over all things and superiority in service over the angels. And he is anointed with the oil of gladness above all his companions. This is exactly what Peter proclaimed in his first sermon in Acts 2.36 after those flames of fire. And in Acts 2.36, Peter said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Beloved, is that the picture of Christ in your heart today? Is he Lord of your life? Is he the master who you are giving everything to and desirous of submitting in all ways? Is he the one who you proclaim as Christ and Messiah and live in light of the fact that he has been the anointed one talked about through all of scripture? This is what is desired of us. This understanding of this text, it makes us ought to stop and consider the wonderful words to the song that say, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus Christ. The Nazarene and wonder how he can love me, a sinner condemned unclean. You all ought stand amazed as we see these glorious contrasts, as we see the superiority of Jesus, the superiority of his source of his service. And next week, Lord willing, of his subsistence. Like, like levels of fresh seafood, beloveds. there are levels of freshness in our lives to Christ. Remember those levels we mentioned at the beginning? Those who deny Christ? Those who know him but don't possess him? Those who know but really just barely? Those who know but are stagnant? And then those who know and love and are fervently serving. Well, I want to give you some practical ways to understand how to grow no matter what category you're in. And if you're not in that category of those striving to fervently serve and love Him, then this is how to get here. These come from a dear friend of mine, Jeff Kirkland, who is a pastor at Christ Fellowship Bible Church in St. Louis. And and he gives us some great reminders, and I've added to these just a bit. But see how following these same principles will move you ahead in your spiritual freshness. Number one, read over the text through the week prior to the sermon. Our next week's text is going to be the following verses in Hebrews. There's no big secrets here. I want you to be able to follow along. Read over them. Pray through them in preparation for the sermon. Then gather your family, your wife, and your children, regardless of their ages, and read the text to them ahead of time and talk through the text. If you have young children and you feel like your kids won't be able to grasp some of the details, they will shock you with what they will come up with. Then... Consider the lyrics from the upcoming music and we'll be putting out to you an email this week because I'm so thankful for what Andrew does as he works diligently to seek through the text that I'm preaching in as he's been studying it ahead of time and he picks songs that help us. I want you to look through those songs, look through those lyrics, use them in prayer. If, if you don't have one of our songbooks, we have them available back at the bookstore. Then gather together with another Christ Fellowship family or a member and prepare together for Sunday. Pray about the service. Do something on a late week for coffee or Saturday brunch, but specifically pray for the service. Pray for the the sermon. Pray for the building up of the flock and for the power in preaching and then use other texts that we've covered as your devotionals through the week. And what are those? We've reminded you of them each week, of of Leviticus, of Matthew, of Colossians, of Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 97. Today's text, Psalm 104, Psalm 95, Isaiah 61. And you can look in your Bibles for next week's Psalms. And for the verses, because they're cross-referenced right in your Bibles. Beloved, if you begin these disciplines this week, I guarantee you it will change your devotion and perspective to Christ. Not because I'm going to accomplish it, because that's what God says about His Word. It will not return void. It will return its good purposes. And then as we consider those amazing truths, as we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love us, a sinner condemned unclean, then we will rejoice in the refrain, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Beloved, that's what I want for you. That's what I want for my family and friends, for all of you as my family and friends, and for my own heart. May we all desire to grow more in our devotion and in our spiritual freshness to Christ.